0: Hello, and welcome to the Osterholm Update, COVID-19, a weekly podcast on the COVID-19 pandemic with Dr. Michael Osterholm. Dr. Osterholm is an internationally recognized medical detective and director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy, or CIDRAP, at the University of Minnesota. In this podcast, Dr. Osterholm will draw on more than 45 years of experience investigating infectious disease outbreaks to provide straight talk on the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Chris Dahl, reporter for CIDRAP News. I'm your host for these conversations. Hi, everyone. Before we get into today's episode, I want to make an exciting announcement. Next week's episode of the podcast will be recorded live and streamed to YouTube on Tuesday, August 11th at 7 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Eastern. Mike will be answering your questions live from Twitter using the hashtag OsterholmUpdateLive. A link to register is in today's episode description. So now on to today's episode. It's August 6th, and nearly eight months after the first U.S. SARS-CoV-2 infection was confirmed, the country is at a crossroads. COVID-19 cases are continuing to surge in the South and the West. New hotspots are emerging in the Midwest and again in some Northeastern states, and the country's ability to test people for the infection and trace the contacts of those with COVID-19 simply cannot keep up with the number of people who are getting infected. The coronavirus wildfire shows no signs of burning out, and with the school year upon us, it could soon get worse. So where do we go at this point? That's what we'll be discussing on this episode of the Osterholm Update. We'll also look at the international situation, explore adequate safety review of vaccines, and dive into the thorny issue of how to communicate with friends and loved ones who don't take the coronavirus seriously. But first, as always, uh, we'll start with Dr. Osterholm's dedication. Mike, who are you dedicating this episode to?
1: Well, thank you, Chris. It's good to be with you again. Thank you to the audience. Um, uh, Again... We appreciate you spending the time with us that you do and the feedback that you give us. And actually, my dedication this week really comes from that feedback. Um, I received a lot of it after last week's discussion on school openings and the issues confronting us there, as well as just some of the, uh, you might say, ongoing conversation that's occurring in this country around this issue. And... um, I I had uh, somewhat of a, a difficult time trying to figure out how to articulate this dedication, but I think you'll know it if you are one of those who feel it. And that is I dedicate this podcast to all of you who are afraid, all of you who have a concern about your family, your kids, your job, you're a teacher, or you're in a place where you are at increased risk potentially of being exposed to this virus, and For many of you, it is a difficult situation because you feel as if maybe you shouldn't feel this way or that somehow uh, the system isn't hearing you. And you are in a very, very normal, real place as a human being confronting this situation. So I, I just want to dedicate this to you. Now, what we have to do is use that energy, that concern in the most positive way we can to help us all get through together being afraid doesn't mean we're frozen. Being afraid doesn't mean we have to be angry. Being afraid doesn't mean that we can't make a difference. And so today for all of you who have real concerns, uh, who are losing sleep over what's going to happen over the next upcoming weeks, just number one, no, you're normal. You're very normal. I get it. I feel it. But at the same time, we're going to do whatever we can with that to Uh, make a difference, and to be positive. So this dedication is
0: to you. Mike, in a piece you co-wrote this week in The Guardian, you say that U.S. morbidity and mortality in the coming months will largely depend on how much fuel the COVID-19 wildfire has access to, and that in the absence of a national plan, governors in hard-hit states really have a decision to make. So what would your advice be? Well, we have to do two things here.
1: Simultaneously, as we're driving this vehicle called Our Lives, Our Communities, we have to understand that we're looking in both the front windshield and the rearview mirror. And we should be looking at both at the same time. What I worry about sometimes is we spend too much time looking into the rear view mirror and not enough to understand that there are going to be roadblocks, potholes, uh, large animals crossing the road in front of us. And, and we've got to be prepared for those. So what I'm talking about here is, is that You know, we're in the middle of this summertime surge issue that's occurred. You know, we've just peaked out at, you know, on average 64 to 68,000 cases a day. People are now feeling some uh, degree of, of, uh, might say, well, we've made it because we are now seeing this today, 57,450 cases down almost 7,000 cases. I want to be really clear about one thing, though, Uh, as you know, that hardly represents all cases. But more importantly, it doesn't even represent all confirmed cases, as the state of California has just announced that they've had some problems with their software, and that over the past few days, they've been missing a number of cases. And we'll have to wait to see how that's corrected. So that 57,000 number I just mentioned for you is going to go up. Um, So that's not a big drop. Why is this happening? Yes, we're seeing uh, decreasing case numbers in some states, um, but where we're seeing that, we're seeing that offset by increasing numbers in other states. It's very interesting. If you look at the 51 states, including the District of Columbia, uh, you'll see that uh, right now there are 12 of those uh, states in the district where you've seen increasing cases over the last 14 days, 29 where it's just level right now meaning that we've come up, but it's kind of static, and then uh, another 10 where it's been dropping. So uh, if you look at that, that's kind of almost an equilibrium kind of situation. So if I'm going through my front windshield now, as opposed to just the rear view saying, boy, look at the case numbers are coming down where we got this thing. Remember, we've been there before. We were there in March and April, and we took some comfort in saying, wow, By May, case numbers are coming down. We went from 32,000 to 28,000 to 24,000, and we got to 22,000 cases reported a day. And that's when pandemic fatigue, Memorial Day, the protests, everything all kind of came together and we gave up. And we basically let loose and we saw what happened as a result of that. That was that rapid buildup to get to that 65 to 67,000 cases a day situation. So where are we going to go from here? And, you know, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't do modeling. Well, as you all know, if you've been listening to this uh, podcast for a while, Uh, but I'm giving you my best professional judgment based in part on my head and my gut and 45 years in the business. I think what's going to happen is we're going to see over the course of the next um, few weeks this kind of give and take on case numbers with some states showing a decreasing amount of cases that are tied to having had house on fire kinds of situations and people still feeling some residual where where places like Florida where so many hospitals still have full ICUs, et cetera. And you're gonna see these cases go up in places like Minnesota, unfortunately. We just have gone through our highest number of cases reported for a seven-day period since the beginning of the pandemic. I worry that we're beginning to look a little bit like what it looked in in the southern states um, in, in late May. and But I don't think we're going to see the big, big increase until about a month from now. Then I think uh, we're going to see a situation where uh, school openings, particularly in secondary schools, I don't think it's going to be a huge issue in grade schools, Um There could be some activity, but I think secondary schools and colleges and universities, we're going to see substantial increase there. And we're going to see spillover into the community, and we could take these numbers to a whole new high. And then we enter into uh, ever more so the the fall heating season, where it's still not cold, cold, but it is really uh, uh, one where people are spending much more time indoors. And I think that September and October can be tough, real tough. But that's if we don't do anything about that. And, uh, you know, I'm amongst others looking at what are the kinds of options we have, uh, barring, uh, you know, a lockdown of some kind to get us below the level where we can maintain it. I just have to to give a couple examples. You know, I've heard over and over again from people, um, if you only did it the way this country did it, first it was Sweden, Vietnam, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And you can see every country's had a challenge, but the challenge is that countries like Vietnam, countries uh, like South Korea, uh, I could go through the laundry list. Even our colleagues to the north in Canada, um, you can see there that when you're dealing with cases that are less than one per hundred thousand population per day, dealing with them in uh, testing and tracing and trying to suppress. Uh, ongoing growth of the virus is much, much easier when you're dealing at that level than you're dealing with ours, where it may be nine to 12 times higher rate right now um, than we've seen these other countries. And so we have a choice. Are we going to do what the other countries did and really lock down? And I'm going to bring that even closer to home. Uh, I look at the state of New York, and as you know, they went through a horrible period in, in March, April. But to their credit, they really locked that virus down go look at their numbers they have been flat 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 for the last 8 to 10 weeks they had days last week with no deaths and they've done it by basically keeping the foot on the brake once they got it down letting up more and more into into everyday life opening the economy and then if we saw case numbers starting to increase and they have a whole series of of, of measurements that they're looking at carefully every day, then they put the breakdown down a little bit. To me, that's a model. Doesn't mean that they're not going to have problems. New York could have a big flare-up tomorrow. Um, doesn't mean that it'll work the same in every place. But what we're trying to get to in that threading the rope through the needle is to get to a, a vaccine where we have the fewest number of people who have to die, the fewest number of people that have to spend weeks in an intensive care unit, the fewest number of people that have to be afraid to go to work every day. That's what we're trying to do. So I think we're at a very important uh, juncture in our whole uh, response to this. Are we going to just basically continue to do what we do? And I don't want to minimize, uh, you know, any number of efforts that are being done. But when I look at, for example, statements that are being made, and I've said this before, uh, you know, everyone mask, wear a mask this is not an issue. But also be mindful of how much impact that can have. And when I hear, you know, public health leaders say, if everybody just masked, we could drive this thing into the ground in four weeks. I remind them that on June 18th, when the California governor announced the mandate for masking in public settings, which I fully support, um, cases were at 3,300 a day. By last week, they were up to almost 10,000 plus cases a day. Now, I don't know that masking didn't cut that in half. Maybe maybe it would've been 20,000, but the point of it is it didn't drive it into the ground. And the same thing is true with many of the other things we might talk about in terms of, you know, how, how we do limiting in restaurants and bars. And the question is, well, can you do that effectively? Can you, will it really make a difference if you still have your outbreaks? And we have to ask ourselves, are we willing to try to get this virus level down to less than one case per 100,000 per day, and then really, really tighten up on testing? Because we have enough tests, I believe, in this country to effectively do the kind of testing we need to do if we're shooting at uh, a number of several thousand cases a day versus uh, 65,000 cases a day. And I think this is the challenge we have right now. We need to understand how we're going to respond. And I don't believe we're going to see a national response that will coordinate this. And I think it's going to be left up to every governor. And I worry that uh, by not having this discussion, when people say we can't do another lockdown, can't do another lockdown. Well, first of all, let's define what we're talking about. Second of all, to me, that, that really misses the point of How much damage and how much pain, suffering, and death will we experience? How much economic loss will we have if between now and next spring, when you get a vaccine, we're going to have to go through? And how much pain is going to be extracted if we try to get this under control now, more like other countries have, and then deal with the crisis issues? No question about it. It's not going to go away. But then deal with it at that much, much lower level where we can open up our schools We can open up more of a public setting where we now have the break there. And so I think it's a a question of our willingness to consider that. It's our question of what is our political will. And uh, as I've said before on this podcast, I believe absolutely in the old line from the oil frame commercial of many decades ago, you can pay me now or you will pay me later. And so I I hope that we can have that discussion in a way that doesn't um, um, pit us in political realms, whatever. Economically, we have to take care of those who are suffering because of uh, the economic implications. If you do lockdowns, lost wages, uh, small business owners, all of these, now is the time for us to take care of them if there was ever a time to do it. And so I'm not naive but I also know what is coming down the pike if we don't respond in a different way. Don't please take cases decreasing in some states right now as, oh, we've, we've, we've beat this thing. We've, we've flattened the curve because we've been there before. And look how fast it came back. We are human. We will make changes for a short period of time, and then we get tired we have to put in place ways to actually drive that virus down so we can accommodate some of that pandemic fatigue and at the same time not see these runaway kinds of situations. So, so I think uh, the piece in The Guardian was really an attempt to to illustrate that point, to have this discussion. And, uh, you know, I, I, I worry that even trying to have this discussion, even on this podcast, is not always safe. You know, I... I have to tell you, I uh, if some of you were to see the email I get at a given day, you'd probably shake your head. You know, uh, this past week, uh, I probably I can't even begin to tell you how many times I was called a traitor, or a coward, or something because I wouldn't get partisan on an issue when I believe that right now we need to stay eye on the ball, and that's the science. Or when you know somehow uh, we're. we're Taking away people's livelihoods when I'm more concerned about just having someone called a virus take away their lives, and so I think that one of the things I hope we can do is have this thoughtful conversation. And we'll talk more about this when we get into the communication issues where we're at right now today. Uh, And uh, but in the meantime, we're we're at a critical point, and this is not a time to rest. Um, This is a time where we really now understand just how much bigger this could get, and I worry that. In a couple of months, we're going to be at a place where we're going to look back and say, boy, remember when it was only 63,000 cases a day? Wasn't that something? That was the good old days. That would be a tragedy on all, beyond anything I can describe.
0: I want to take a look at the, the, the situation in the rest of the world, Mike, and let's start with Australia. Um, Australia's Victoria State and the city of Melbourne have opted to go full bore on a strict lockdown to get their spiraling coronavirus outbreak under control. Uh, what do you make of this strategy?
1: One of the most important messages I think that we can take away right now from uh, what's happening internationally is no one has a perfect answer. No one. And, uh, you know, I, I find it difficult when I look at, for example, the data on school openings. And, you know, we are told if you just did it like this country and this country and this country because they didn't have a problem. Well, the problem was they didn't have a problem because there were such low occurrence of cases in the community at that time. And that if you just opened it when the case numbers were increased in that community, what happened in the schools was very different. And so the first thing to understand is everybody in the world right now, even China, is being challenged by this virus and this leaky bucket virus, as I've called it, basically coming back And being there, and you have to continue to. It's it's like weeding your garden of weeds. You know, if every day new weeds come up, you got to keep on top of it, or else it goes to weeds. And what these countries have done, however, have been able to keep that at a lower level to begin with. Can respond. So you know, I look at the issue in Victoria, uh, where Melbourne is at. Um, You know, I've been just a fair amount of time there last year. I, I, I I I know. What an incredible group of researchers and public health people they have there. And they're challenged. But you know what? They're sitting there dealing with 700 cases a day, maybe. And I say to myself, wow, that would be a much easier situation to deal with uh, than, for example, what we're doing within this country. I look at Vietnam. You know, they're very concerned now. They've had spread to two more provinces, the original epicenter in Da Nang. It appears to be more under control, but suddenly they had a series of deaths after touting for months no deaths in Vietnam, and it just reminds us that what we have to deal with is an everyday presence of this. But if we have it at those lower levels, we can, I believe, do it like New York's doing it, and so forth. So I think at in an international level, don't be surprised. Um, you know, uh, all these countries that appear appear to have had it under control do in a sense still have it under control. It's just they're challenged day in and day out. That's very different than the kind of huge coronavirus forest fire that is consuming countries. Uh, Right here in the Americas, when you look at Brazil, you look at other countries here, uh, South Africa, uh, India right now is seeing major activity. Um, That's to be expected and they, like the United States, don't have it under control and they're paying the price. So so I think the international uh, data for me just confirms what I see here in the United States, that we end up having to uh, uh, deal with this uh, in a in a different way than than we have in the past and every country in the world is a lesson for us to learn from. The last thing I also wanna say though is, is that this is where I always get concerned because um, how, uh, it's, it's very difficult to, to talk about all these numbers and not just get your glazed over eye look. You know, we are now talking about every four to five days, adding another million cases on globally. These are confirmed cases. We know surely there are many, many more unconfirmed infections that don't get detected. But there was a time going to the first million cases that took months that seemed like, wow, I can't believe we got here. And I think we're at that point now of just understanding the dynamics and the dimensions of this pandemic, where, you know, a million cases here, a million cases there, pretty soon you got real cases. Well, every one of those individuals is a person, you know, it's, it's it's a tragedy. So I just also don't want us to get numb to all these big numbers. Um, I would just as like to see us stay as sensitive and as concerned as when we were dealing with 500 cases, as we're now dealing with a million new cases every couple days, um, I, I worry because otherwise it gets too easy just to dismiss what's going on. Well, you know, it's another million cases. So what can we do about that? That's a real challenge.
0: Last week, we talked about the phase three clinical trials for the Moderna vaccine and what it will look like. And, and this week, I want to ask about safety issues. Everyone is obviously hopeful that one or more of the six vaccine candidates that are in phase three trials will be effective and that we could possibly have a vaccine approved by early next year. But there are concerns that in moving so quickly, safety issues will be overlooked. So, Mike, what would you say to those who are concerned about safety?
1: Everyone should be concerned about safety. And that is not at all inconsistent with having an effective vaccine soon. Um. The challenge is, is, how do we merge those two together to have the data, to assure the safety information is there, and at the same time to show that a vaccine works? Let's just take a step back. Um, there are actually 23 different vaccines right now that are in clinical trials somewhere around the world. You may have heard last week the Russians announcing that they would have a vaccine soon, that they would be um, providing to their population. That one I'd have some concerns about in terms of how much safety and effectiveness data they have. But the way that we traditionally uh, bring a vaccine onto the market, uh, one, number one, it usually takes years. Number two is is it goes through a series of studies that each one builds upon the previous one. And what we do is we go through three different phases with often then a post-marketing phase, so really kind of four phases to get a, a product to market and to use. In phase one, it really is just about safety, totally looking at can we give this to animals? Can we give this vaccine to a very few number of humans who are who are volunteers to look and see if we inject into you something, in this case, this vaccine, that you basically don't develop anaphylactic shock? Uh, you know you don't have some other serious problem occur in your uh, in, in your health picture. That's pretty straightforward information, um, particularly when you're dealing with the animal model issue. Uh, then you move on to phase two uh, which is a, a combination of safety a dosing uh, and and then a preliminary effectiveness kind of measurement and what we mean by that is now we want more data on safety we're now inter you know including more humans into this um, some of these trials included like for example the moderna 45 volunteers who were 18 to 55 years of age you know they got three different doses of the vaccine uh, to look to see how it uh, would work Um and uh, then look at the reactions in that. And then from an effectiveness standpoint, what they were really looking at was the antibody development and, and what did the immune response look like? Was it consistent with what you would expect to see if someone were to be protected against this virus? And, and based on that, and, and again, phase one and two should be really straightforward. Um, and, and what I mean by that is, is that... Um, It it should be very transparent, you know, did you have reactions or not? You know, what kind of antibody levels did you develop? Then you move into phase three. Phase three gets much more complicated because now what we're talking about is a a kind of a definitive safety level review. Uh, I'll come back to that. And then the effectiveness or efficacy of this, uh, in this case, a vaccine. The Moderna vaccine enrolled uh, 30,000 people uh, in this new phase three trial. Uh, of which 15,000 got the vaccine, 15,000 got a placebo. Neither of the recipients of the vaccine or placebo knew which one they got. Um, and now they're in the community. Uh, and over time, as more and more of them get infected, uh, we'll be able to look at uh, the issue of how well did the vaccine work. Definitive safety means not that it's the absolute, there is absolutely no safety concerns about this vaccine, but in the administration of the vaccine at the dose that was used. There were no uh, major challenges in terms of of adverse events that required hospitalization or or something that would be um, considered uh, of a real significance. Now, we can't, with 15,000 people having gotten the vaccine, say absolutely there couldn't be something we won't see in one per 100,000 or one per 200,000. But um, it gives you a good sense that it is quite safe to give this vaccine. This is where the efficacy studies come in. Uh, When we look at uh, those who got the vaccine, were they protected at a significantly higher rate than those that got the placebo? And what will happen then is this will go to a post-marketing studies, where now we're gonna be testing many, many more doses of vaccine by just using it as a regular vaccine in our community. But we wanna know, are there reactions? Um, Are are there uh, situations where something might've happened where it could be associated with vaccine, such as an immune disorder that occurs later? And also, how does it work now as a vaccine in various groups? With embedded within these phase three trials often are subgroups where it'll be older individuals or people who might have other risk factors such as body mass index increased, et cetera. Um, And more data will be collected on that. So what's gonna happen is these studies uh, through phase three, which are being done now for all these vaccines, um, will in fact be evaluated uh, I think sometime this fall, if we continue to see sufficient transmission in our communities, it's a, a sad commentary that we need to have higher levels of, vac- of virus movement in the community to be able to effectively test these vaccines. But the fact of the matter, that's the case. We'll know, I think, probably this fall, uh, early winter, whether or not these vaccines were effective and whether within the context of who got vaccinated, they were safe. Um What I worry about is if there were a decision made to bring forward one of these vaccines under an emergency use authorization, where basically we don't know all the data, but somebody in the government has decided, okay, uh, we're going to put it out. That's what people have talked about this October surprise is getting a lot of attention. I worry a bit about this discussion because I think if we talk about it enough, we can convince anybody in the world that these vaccines aren't going to be safe. And uh, so I'm, I personally wrestle with how to talk about this because safety is very important to me. It's important to my kids and grandkids. And I'm gonna make damn certain that I wouldn't ask anybody to take a vaccine I didn't feel had that highest level of safety uh, built into to the evaluation. But at the same time, I wanted to also say safety is important. So we're kind of caught in a catch 22 here between you know making people more concerned about the safety Uh, versus, you know, let it on like it doesn't matter. And I can assure you, and nothing else, that I am 100% confident that a number of my colleagues, and I surely commit to this, if we felt that there was any reason to think that a vaccine wasn't safe, uh, we would speak up, even if the U.S. government, uh, FDA, uh, decided to approve it, which I am going to believe they won't. Um, and there won't be any uh, undue influence on whether a vaccine is brought forward. But if there were, I am certain there would be a large body of established scientists with great credibility that would say no, and the public would know that. At the same time, we then, as scientists, need to also say yes when it becomes that point uh, where we have sufficient data, and then we need to help people understand the importance of getting this vaccine, um, which as you know, is our only real, real way out with this uh, pandemic.
0: We have a great email question this week from one of our listeners on COVID-19 and communication. And I know this is an important issue to you, Mike, as you have from the very first podcast stressed how important it is to communicate the facts about this virus. So Michael writes, I was wondering what your experience has been like and how to best deal with people, especially loved ones and friends, who think this pandemic is no big deal aren't following guidelines, and have fallen victim to misinformation, such as uh, the idea that the virus was made in the lab. So, Mike, how do you communicate with someone who, for whatever their reasons, doesn't take this virus seriously or believes things that you know aren't true? This is really a major challenge as we're trying to navigate the
1: virus in our own lives and watching what it does to those who we love, who we work with, who we know, who we care about, and how they respond to this virus. We all recognize this is obviously um, part of an entire societal issue right now about what we believe from a partisan politics side, what we believe from from um, our economic uh, position that we're in. And, and we just have to acknowledge that this is really tough. I've seen families that um, have been close as a group of siblings for 20, 30, 40 years, where this has become an extremely divisive issue, um, where one group of sibs can't understand why the other group of sibs, or at least one of the sibs, could ever think like that. And, you know, that, that tells you that it's something much, much deeper than just about facts about, you know, what people believe or don't believe. And, and the first thing you have to do is acknowledge that this is real, that the worst thing you can do right now is throw gasoline in a fire. And what I mean by that is you don't back down to say, okay, you're right. But at the same time, you don't automatically poke that individual in the eye and say, I'm right. Uh, you know, I've actually tried to live by some of the things that I've been sharing with you. And one of the things I've done. Over the course of recent months, is when I get these really horrible emails in. You know, if they don't threaten to kill me, then that's that's a doable one, Um, and and I write back, and I'll kind of be laid back a little bit, but say, okay, you know, this is to help me understand why you feel this way, and and you know, what is it that uh, you think this could be done differently and why? And I've actually had a number of these that you can say, I'm crazy for doing it. But, and maybe you're on the podcast right now and think I am crazy if you're one of those people who received such an email. But we started an exchange, in some cases, brief exchanges, but we came to very different positions. Um, I had several people this past week, for example, who read the article in The Guardian that we just talked about, and the idea that we need to look at uh, what else we can do. And I talked about the New York state model and how it had worked in this in this Guardian op-ed I did. And I got one email back from an individual who said, you know, I was reading this thing. It was a great thing. And then we got to New York and I read it and I thought, you know, I, I threw it away. I, I couldn't do this anymore. Why did you say that? Look how they had done. I thought, well, that's an interesting thing. So I responded back to him and it turned out that um, he had lost a grandparent in a nursing home outbreak there, in which he attributed it to the New York State response because they had opened up nursing homes to people to get them out of the hospital. And um, when we had an ongoing continued conversation about this, email-wise, I shared that was a real problem. You know, we all recognize the challenges that happened with long-term care. It was in many states. You know, New York was one of them. But since that time, look what they've done. Look what they've learned. Look how they've applied that. And we ended up having several more emails with each other that turned out to be very positive. And by the time I got down with the last one with him, I think it's my last one now, he actually was very complimentary. And and he said, this was really helpful for me to work through this because I had this pent up anger about what happened. And, you know, I don't think that can happen with everybody. And I surely wouldn't tell you that it's, you know, it's going to be perfect. But I think We need now more than ever to have patience and to be able to pull back and to try to engage in a conversation. And if that doesn't work, it doesn't work. But I think it may work more often than you know. You know, go back to the May 6th uh, viewpoint that uh, Peter Sandman and Jody Lennar did on communication during a time like this and the whole crisis communication issue. And I think it's it's how we communicate, whether it's not over reassuring, you know, it's not basically being in their face, but validating emotions and moving that way. Um, So I, I I don't give up on moving the needle in terms of trying to have these conversations Having been in the middle of so many of them recently, uh, as I've told you, I I can't tell you, I I was just actually on a a podcast earlier today here, or a a meeting webinar, in which a question was asked by someone who asked me about a quote that I supposedly made on public radio earlier this week, and it never happened. I never said that. It was never. But that person heard it that way, and and by just being able to take the time to explain it, it really made a difference. And so I urge all of you to take the time, the patience, not saying it's going to be solving everything, but it's right now, I, I worry that the only other option then is just to see this degenerate into a, a he said, she said, uh, more anger, more belief that the other side is out to get the other side and, and not being responsible. So I, I, I know that's not necessarily a satisfactory answer. Uh, I surely don't have any magic pills to give you to take that makes us all fine. But the fact that you're even asking this question like you did says to me, you're one of those people that can engage others and bring them along. And hopefully uh, that by itself is, is, is one more uh, step forward in terms of what we're trying to do.
0: National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases Director Dr. Anthony Fauci this week said in an interview that he thought it might be a good idea for teachers to wear face shields if they return to the classroom this year. So, Mike, we've talked a lot about masks on the podcast, but not about face shields. What do you think of face shields and and of Dr. Fauci's suggestion? Well, face shields surely can
1: play a role, particularly if it's in a setting where you have someone's mouth literally right in front of you. And they are either going to cough or, uh, you know, basically eject droplets right at your eyes and in your nose. And that is something that happens in the clinical setting. Uh, That's real. Uh, Dentists are a good example where the mouth, you know, face to mouth is real. But in terms of the everyday setting, um, I think that that is not at all. Uh, necessary or even that helpful to do that. And I know that there are others who would say differently, but uh, you know, even the CDC does not recommend the use of face shields for normal everyday activities or a substitute for masking. The uh, route of infection, even with a face shield is it comes up, the air comes up underneath the shield into your nose, into your mouth as you breathe in and out. And uh, uh, we must never, never, never let plastic fake shields become an alternative for masks. It's just that simple. Um, If you look at, uh, there's been a number of review articles that have come out uh, from NIOSH and from other areas, basically saying the same thing, that face shields for infection control um, in that setting uh, do not provide any protection as such from aerosols or the smaller uh, particles that are floating in the air. There was a recent outbreak in a hotel in Switzerland where a number of the staff people wore only face shields, uh, others wore masks, and the uh, face shield people were the ones that all got infected and not the people with masks. Now, that should tell you something right there. Uh, You know, it's not a controlled trial, but it's the understanding that just, from a physical standpoint to getting those aerosols up into your face is what's important. Now, if you people don't believe in aerosols and there are those that don't, think that they're very rare events that aerosols are expelled out uh, with exhalation or inhaled in, then they're gonna say, well, face shields are perfect because that's not how it happens. Imagine it's kind of getting spitted at me uh, as opposed to something that's kind of warfing in the room. So, so I, I wouldn't agree with the face shield uh, recommendation uh, I surely would, um, you know, do that if, in fact, I thought it would make any difference. I think it just adds another layer on. Uh, and, and where I see it coming up more and more is people who don't want to wear a mask because they feel like they can't communicate as well. Um, this isn't teachers, a very legitimate concern. Um, I, I've heard about it from people who are trying to do talks which first of all you know is a challenge in of itself to have some a crowd in an, in an indoor area where you're giving a talk saying well I want to take my mask off because I they can't hear as well well my whole point is if you're indoors giving a talk that's a problem to begin with right now number 2 is you definitely should have the mask on is more more so than the audience itself so so Yeah, I I would not uh, recommend face shields at this time um, as is a necessary part of any kind of PPE unless it's in uh, a clinical care setting.
0: You've mentioned in previous episodes an effort that you've been involved with uh, to develop a reusable N95 mask. Mike, can you give us an update on that effort? Well, we continue to be involved with that. There has been real
1: progress made on the part of the team in California that developed this new material with the electrostatic charge that can be basically rewashed over and over again. Um, we're kind of on a wait mode here right now to help a potential rollout with that as they look at how this can be manufactured and made available to the public. Um, and, uh, I'm again, very impressed by the work that they're doing. Uh, we're on, uh, you know, 24 seven kind of standby to help however we can. And I can only hope that, um, uh, this occurs sooner than than later, um, as uh, every day we're missing the opportunity to protect people that that if they had these, I think would be substantially uh, protected uh, much more so than than um, their use of the current face cloth coverings and boy i I couldn't wait to see that happen.
0: Any uh, parting thoughts for us this week, Mike?
1: Uh, yes, you know I'm trying to again tie together the science uh, the emotion of the moment, uh, where are we going, the uncertainty, the concern about the safety of our loved ones, um, boy, that makes for quite a mix. <laughs> and you know, I, I, I try to understand from my own perspective, what is it that we need right now in the people we want to be our leaders? What do we need in the people we want to be our friends? What do we need in the people that we want to trust to give us the information? And I wanted to share with you today um, actually something I wrote as part of a commencement address I gave um, several years ago. And I've already referred to that commencement address one other time in this podcast. And and, um, I I know that there are new listeners, and so I ask all of you your indulgence for hearing this introduction before. But um, let me just give the background to how this commencement address came about. As I said, as I noted in a previous podcast, uh, I was really given a gift of a lifetime in a relationship I had as a, a boy growing up and into adulthood. Um, I was the oldest of six kids, and I had to manage both of my parents' uh, mental challenges and my father's alcoholism and his violence. And But but one of the really special gifts that, um, uh, if maybe the most important of my childhood, was a relationship I had with the wife of the owner of the Iowa newspaper, where my my father was a photographer. Um, she was in her mid forties when I was born, um, and um, and became kind of I became her adopted son, and she in turn kind of really, for lack of a better way to describe it, became the mother of my soul. And as some of you have heard me say, I I believe fully her spiritual DNA is still in every cell of my body and helped shape the values I cherish today. Um, her family name was Nana. Um, and, uh, she was the essence of a Renaissance woman in every way, uh, a real inspiration to me. And over the course of 20 plus years, um, when she died, when I was 27, uh, we shared hundreds and hundreds of hours of soul searching conversations. And, and (laughs) ironically, she wrote me hundreds of letters and notes that would appear in the mail, even though her house was just eight blocks away from my house, she would still mail them to me. And so several years ago, I was asked to give this commencement address at Des Moines University Medical School. I had never discussed this relationship uh, in public before, but I I decided I really did owe the graduates more than just another warmed over commencement address. So I ventured out and shared some of the lessons learned from Nana. And uh, one of the ones that uh, really has stuck with me over the years is the whole concept of class and what does class mean? And, and Nana had a sense of that uh, that was remarkable. And uh, so let me share with you a, a moment in my life as it relates to what she shared in terms of understanding class and how all of us today surely can use class in our lives, both from ourselves to others, as well as from others to us. The commencement address. Finally, let me say a few words about class. It's the ability to never forget who you are or what is most important in life. In particular, being a physician or a physician assistant means you're pretty important. The life and death status of your loved ones may be in your hands. But never forget that class is the status you earn when your achievement allows you to go to the head of the line and you don't think twice about standing in the back of the line because others were there first. Nana taught me that class comes in many different packages and under many different circumstances. When I asked her once to better describe class to me, she replied, you'll know it when you see it. She was right. An experience several years ago provided me such an example. I was given an endowed lecture at one of the largest teaching hospitals on the East Coast. The chief of medicine at this prestigious institution is an internationally recognized expert in his area of medical specialty, and was in charge of the day's activities. The only way I can describe him is to say he's a brilliant clinician and a wonderful gentleman. As we walked the halls, fellow physicians, nurses, security guards, nurses, aides, and even station clerks addressed him by his name, Jack, or an affectionate doc. This lack of formality might be viewed by some as a lack of respect for someone of such stature. Nothing could be further from the truth. Jack seemed to know every one of them by their first name and addressed them as if he were talking to a dear friend or neighbor. The deep admiration and respect for the chief was obvious. After my lecture in the hospital's auditorium, Jack and I were taking the back roads to get to his office. It seemed like an endless maze of hallways. Suddenly, in a relatively out-of-the-way hallway near the lab, we encountered an older gentleman who appeared lost and distraught. Jack asked him if he could help. The older gentleman seemed almost surprised someone in a white doctor's coat would ask. He blurted out in a painful acknowledgement that his granddaughter had just been admitted to the pediatric intensive care unit, and he was trying to get there. He was desperately lost. Jack looked at me, and his eyes told me just to follow him. He asked the grandfather if he minded taking some stairs to save time. He replied, anything to get me to my granddaughter. After more hallways and two flights of stairs, we were in front of the intensive care unit. Jack put his hand out to the man and said, please know the staff of this unit are remarkable. Your granddaughter is getting the best care possible. The grandfather got huge tears in his eyes, grabbed Jack's outreached hand with both of his and held it for a moment. I'll never forget that silent but heartfelt gratitude. Obviously, the grandfather had no way of knowing that the physician whose hand he held was a prestigious and powerful individual in his field of medicine. But then... That was not the Jack I saw standing there either. As we walked away, making another attempt to get to his office and continuing our previous discussion, I realized again that Nano was right. I would know class when I saw it, and I was in the presence of real class. I hope all of you can feel class in your life, and we all can be like the Jacks of the world. This is a tough time, we need that. We need our science. We need our public health. You know, we need our reassurances. We need our moments to be afraid. And we need our moments of class. And so I leave you today, as I do every podcast, urging you to be part of that pandemic of kindness, to care about people, to listen to people, and to act with class. I've always said, when you act with class, you never need doubt yourself. And that, to me, is the message all of us, I believe, on these podcasts absolutely want and need to feel. Have a good, safe week. I look forward to the live podcast next week. Although I must say I'm a little bit nervous, I'm sure I'm going to get some really tough questions, uh, good ones, but tough ones. And uh, thank you so much again for listening and for being part of this. Uh, We appreciate you very much, and we
0: surely welcome your feedback. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Osterholm Update. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review. And be sure to keep up with the latest COVID-19 news by visiting our website, sidrap.umn.edu. The Osterholm Update is produced by Maya Peters, Corey Anderson, and Angela Ulrich.